Hello everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva, a podcast that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula, an area in the Mid-Atlantic region that encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I will be your host to take you down the sometimes treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva, a little piece of heaven that has beaches, tax-free shopping, one of the best children's hospitals in the world, and of course, home to our current president. There are beaches that do seemingly go on forever. Dolphins that can be seen occasionally leaping in the distance. I've been fortunate enough to see them a few times. And some beaches have wild ponies that roam. And though you may not see them every time, it still is breathtaking each time that you do. The beach is theirs and we are just visiting. So the area that they normally roam is in Chincoteague and Assateague, Virginia, as well as Assateague, Maryland. I used to spend some of my summer vacations in Chincoteague for a number of years. As I grew into adulthood, I would visit quite often by myself. I scared my mother by just going off two hours away all alone. She worried, but I enjoyed the peace that this little treasure held. I felt at home there, and each time I go back still, even if the stores and hotels and locations of some of the things have changed, it still feels like a home away from home. I can actually still hear my sister and I arguing over what TV show to watch. Now remember, this was a long time ago, the 1980s, and I wanted to watch cartoons, but she wanted to watch Chips because she loved Eric Estrada. But then there are the Chincoteague ponies. They are named Chincoteague, but they can also be found roaming the shores of Assateague, both on the Maryland and Virginia sides. Though it's not 100% known for a fact, it is strongly believed that a Spanish galleon went down in the ocean off the shore of Chincoteague, and horses aboard that ship made their way to the shores. Now, many generations later, these ponies are actually considered a breed on their own, with their bodies adjusting to the diet available to them, and with this having a direct impact on their appearance. And it is in this backdrop that our story takes place today. Now, before I begin, I do want to say that this podcast reflects my personal interest in the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean, no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this information through publicly available sources. In some cases, personal observations about the area may be discussed. This podcast is produced for informational purposes And as I've gleaned the information from these publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee everything that involves accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, or time delays, such as there are further updates after the publication of this episode. 
As a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. Also, as with each episode, I will include links to my sources in the description. So off the coast in the Atlantic is a highway, one that's invisible to most of us, and highways that remain in the deep subconscious of our minds, knowing that ships do roam the ocean, but never really seeing them or thinking about them unless we are involved in shipping or until something happens. First, there is some information that is needed to get an understanding of the players in this event. The biggest player, both figuratively and literally, was the ship Marine Electric. This ship was launched in 1944, with its registered port of a call being Wilmington, Delaware. So I guess this means that this episode will have a double Delmarva connection. And as the ship was shortly not needed anymore for the war effort, it was sold to the company Gulf in 1947 and renamed Gulf Mills. In 1961, she was sold again to Marine Transport Lines, or as I'll be referring to them, MTL. It was here that she was given the name Marine Electric. Here's where things really start to intrigue me and not just for this ship, but others that I've heard about where this also occurred. In order to get as much use as possible out of the ship's cargo hold, it was actually cut in half and a cargo area was inserted. I almost envision in my mind the thought of a short dining room table that has that leaf that you can either insert or pops up when you pull the table out. I've always wondered about the stability of these ships, though I'm sure engineers <clears throat> look at everything. There is still something that I find unsettling about this process. But anyway, the ship's length was extended from 523 feet to 605. I have heard some documentaries or stories say that this doubled the length of the ship, but it didn't. My only thought on that is possibly they were meaning to say that the cargo area doubled, but this is just my speculation. The dangers of shipping are always there. Even in calm, clear waters, something unimaginable can happen. It just takes one thing, or as is more often the case, a number of different things that lead to disaster. And if one of those things did not happen, that disaster would never have occurred. Now, weather can change quickly, and sometimes even if you have a weather prediction, it can still sneak up on you. To give some personal perspective, I've experienced on a very slight level comparatively how this happens. Just a little south of where this story takes place, and actually, in the same town where the Marine Electric began their journey on this voyage, I did something that was probably ill-advised and not something I would probably do again. Long story short, I went to the Norfolk area and I took a tour cruise. It was to see historical places. Now a hurricane was coming up the coast, but it wasn't even supposed to get there until the next day. 
we weren't even supposed to start feeling the impacts of the winds until the following day. But about halfway through the trip, the winds started to pick up and it actually started to control the motion of the boat. So the wind was increasing and it was seemingly gaining strength exponentially on each minute. Earlier in the trip, the tour guide had pointed out floating docks in the area. The traditional docks had been destroyed a couple of years earlier by another hurricane. So floating docks, which were not as rigid and could move with the waves, were installed. And this actually was not a great feature in our case. As our boat approached the dock and we were getting very close, a wave surged and it hit the dock. I'm sorry, the dock hit the ladder and there was really no other way off the boat. So, you know, this was not a huge ship. So what happened is the ladder did break and one of the crew members jumped onto the dock to assist us while getting off the boat. Another helped us jump from the top of the inside of the ladder onto the dock. I watched a mother toss her frightened two-year-old daughter to a person who was already standing on the dock. And somehow when it was my turn, I landed, even on my feet. Now, I couldn't make light of this and say that, you know, it was the weight of the jumpers, including myself, that helped stabilize the dock but I was never so happy to be back on solid ground once I got to the end of the dock and was finally able to breathe again. The tour company announced that we could come back after the hurricane for a free tour, but I was not going to be in the area at that time and I really doubt that I would have been emotionally ready by then. So we were close enough to get back safely, though a little worse for wear. And when something happens in the water off the coast of the U.S., who do we normally turn to? Of course, we probably say the Coast Guard off the top of our heads, but sailors also rely on the rules of the waves on other sailors. No sailor, sailor will leave another behind, even if it's at their own expense. And in mid-February of 1983, the 10th and the 12th, the East Coast was hammered with what Weatherbug terms as a blizzard, but the National Weather Service terms as a nor'easter. If you're not familiar with nor'easter, think hurricane, but with colder weather. And lest we think that we are the only ones who can come up with the descriptive names like Snowmageddon, this storm was labeled Megalopolis Blizzard. And this was 1983. The Marine Electric crew also felt secure in the fact that they were only about 30 miles off the coast, so if they did encounter treacherous and life-threatening situations, they were not that far out from the Coast Guard's reach. The ship did leave Norfolk on February 10th, 1983. She carried just under 25,000 tons of coal, secured in the cargo bays and closed with a airtight hatch or hatches. Along the way on February 11th, they were already facing fierce waves. And on this same day, the Coast Guard contacted them to help a fishing boat named the Theodora. The men did not hesitate to help. 
Chief Mate Bob Cusick, with over 40 years of maritime experience, had seen the Theodora before and could direct the boat to the Theodora's location. Cusick had at one point been offered a chance to be captain, but he liked to be out amongst his men. They had nothing but nice things to say about him, and from what I've heard about the captain, a Captain Coral, he was someone that you would want to sail under. So once they did reach the stricken ship, they actually positioned the giant cargo carrier into a position to protect the Theodore from the waves. The word heroic does not begin to describe what they did, putting themselves directly in the line of danger to protect the much smaller ship. They withstood the barrage of waves for, for about an hour until a Coast Guard helicopter arrived to take over, rescuing the men from the Theodora. Marine Electric resumed the journey, but early in the morning of February 12th, around 1.30 a.m., 30 miles off the coast of Chincoteague, Virginia, the bow started to take on water. Now, the bow could usually face the waves head on and have the water sweep over the bow and off the other side. That's the way it was made. But in this case, the bow was going under the water and not bouncing up the way it was supposed to. The captain called for everyone to prepare. The men donned their life jackets and began to ready the lifeboats. I would have to imagine that you know, as the men looked at the swells, they may have feared the lifeboats even more. If a 600 plus foot boat could not handle the waves, how could something that was the fraction of, a, of the size of that boat? When the crew was awoken, those who may have had years of experience could probably feel a difference in the flow of the boat. It just didn't feel right to them. They reached out to the Coast Guard beginning around 2.51. They were told that it would take a couple of hours and as Captain Coral replied, they didn't have a couple of hours. He was a very honest man and was very direct. He told them that he thought that he was losing his ship. The captain was left to make an unorthodox but necessary choice. He ordered the ship to head towards land with the intention of purposely running the ship aground. That way they would be closer to help, but they didn't get that chance. With what I would think was a heart-wrenching edict, Captain Curl ordered abandoned ship. Third mate Gene Kelly had just started throwing life rings into the water. The lifeboats were practically useless to an extent. The ship was listing too far and the boats were just swinging out to a point where they couldn't be launched. Kelly watched as a man who was reaching towards a lifeboat to haul it back in fell over the rail and soon the ship would capsize. The water was just above freezing and there's a shock that can take place when the human body encounters frigid waters. They may not be able to catch their breath and from the Disasters at Sea episode that I watched on this, which I did happen to get a lot of my information from, to paraphrase, a person described it as a one minute to regulate the breathing, 10 minutes that you would have with purposeful movement, and by the end of an hour, they could be passed out. And even though it wasn't said, 
I'm thinking, or worse. Gene Kelly found a life ring, but completely by accident. He just happened to bump into it. He grabbed onto it, and five other men were already holding onto it. He watched as a crewmate quietly died. And again, paraphrasing here, a death like this can be described as being loud and riotous internally, but outwardly very quiet. The men, I'm sure, had to struggle not to fall asleep. But then, some of them heard the sound of a helicopter. The Coast Guard had arrived, but this was a time before they had rescued divers in the Coast Guard. But soon, they were joined by a Navy helicopter, which did have a rescue diver on hand. Just one lone man, James McCann, braved the waters for an hour, grabbing every man that he could whether they were conscious or not, and took them to the rescue basket, which would then be hauled back onto the helicopter. Kelly was rescued in this manner. Cusick had made it to a lifeboat, and a Norwegian ship named the Behringer had tried to pull him from the lifeboat onto their ship, but found that it would be too dangerous to do so. What they did is then called the Coast Guard to let them know where to find Cusick. The third survivor, Paul Dewey, had also made it to a lifeboat and tried to pull other crew members into the boat. However, he would be the only one to survive from that boat. When all was said and done, only three men out of 34 had survived, and those three men would change U.S. shipping. I cannot say how much respect that I have for the men who survived the men who died, and the families of those who died. In the aftermath of the accident, MTL immediately started to shift blame to the crew members, insinuating that they did not close the hatches or did not close them correctly, that they may have run the ship into a shallow water and damaged the bottom of the boat. Possibly they anchored incorrectly, or they may have even loaded the ship wrong. And if a ship is loaded in the incorrect order, it can literally break apart. But Bob Cusick, who you may have caught earlier that I hold him in a lot of esteem, was awesome. He kept records of everything. Previously, he had let the captain know of issues with the hatches and a number of other concerns. The request for the repair was denied by MTL. Time was money, and the repair would take time. A maritime board was convened for the investigation, along with the NTSB joining. Even though this was on the water, the NTSB would investigate as there were more than six deaths. They studied a load sheet that Bob Cusick had used. This sheet showed the order in which the cargo was loaded. This is important because loading too much cargo to one side of the ship without balancing it out can cause damage and up to the destruction of the ship. It was found that it was loaded properly. Now there was kind of an unwritten code that sailors don't go against the powers that be. And to an extent, I can definitely understand this. Shipping is their livelihood and the ship owners are the ones who pay them. 
but the three remaining crew members and the families of the deceased would not let mistakes and in some cases outright negligence pass by without a fight. The three survivors had watched as their friends and colleagues died. They had their lives pass before their eyes, thinking of their families, their children and wives that they may never see again. So repairs and the need for them had been reported to MTL. The hatches aboard the ship were so bad that men were afraid to step on them. In some places, they had actually drawn circles on the deck that showed where weak points were so that they wouldn't accidentally step on them and fall into the cargo area. These cargo holds are huge, and if someone fell through, it could lead to serious injury and even death. Fixes were made that were normally meant for temporary repairs. The hatches were thin, and there were holes in the deck plating. Now the investigators caught a break. A hatch had been replaced recently, and they tracked down the old one. It showed evidence of how bad MTL let things get before finally replacing or fixing anything. If the crew was afraid to walk or step on the hatches because of weakness, those hatches had no chance against tons of water. As the cargo holds filled with water, the Marine Electric was losing the battle. The NTSB believed that the captain had made the decision to abandon ship at the right time, but they were truly in an almost impossible situation. But all the blame cannot be placed solely on MTL. Ships had to pass seaworthy inspections made by the Coast Guard, and in some cases the Coast Guard did delegate to the American Bureau of Shipping. By the way, the inspection fees were paid by the ship owners to the American Bureau of Shipping. Thinking just a slight conflict of interest there. In one instance, an inspection of a ship took 30 minutes. Now, I can't say how big that boat was, but given the size of these cargo carriers, 30 minutes should barely give the inspector enough time to inspect the bridge. In even more blatant cases, MTL faked inspection reports. There were supposedly inspections when the ship was not in port or when the hatches were not on the ship because they had been removed for maintenance. So I'm not really sure how they thought they could get away with that. The cause of the accident was laid at MTL's feet. They put money before people. And whenever I hear stories like this, stories where a company ignores important safety issues to make sure that they don't lose money, I'm really left in awe. So for all the cargo that they may have carried in the time since the wear first started to show, it would be interesting to see how that compared with what they did lose with both the ship, cargo, and most importantly and irreplaceably, the lives of the 31 men who died in this accident. Early on, I did an episode called World Series Shakeup, and a similar situation happened there. Employees would take shortcuts 
to try to save the company money, or I guess a better way to phrase it, would be not to lose money if things were completely shut down while they made repairs or did routine maintenance. In that case, people also paid with their lives. At the end of the investigation of the Marine Electric disaster, there were numerous findings and recommendations made by the Marine Board of Investigation. And these were findings that the lead investigator, Dominic Colicchio, had to fight for. Basically, his superiors didn't want him to be so thorough, but he fought and even threatened to go to the media and he ultimately won out, to an extent. He also sacrificed his career, retiring in 1985. This report showed so, so many recommendations. I will attach the casualty report um, after the investigation was finished, and it is very detailed and it's amazing how, how many things they were actually able to point out, um, as well as how many recommendations that they were able to give. So in short, as a result of this investigation, inspections were tightened and it did put a focus on safety. The improvement of safety standards led to somewhere between 70 to 90 ships being scrapped many of them World War II era ships. Now, ships that were made for World War II, they were made very, very quickly, and in some cases not even meant to last that long. An idea at that time was basically get the ship made, get it out on the water, because there's a chance it could be hit by a torpedo. So for these ships to actually be still on the water after almost four decades, to me is really a miracle within itself. But as we can see in this case, the wear and tear on that ship finally caught up to it. So ships that frequented the North Atlantic now are required to have survival suits on board. These suits are designed to help them better combat the cold. Now, this also led to the creation of the United States Coast Guard Rescue Divers. A school was created for these divers, and since its inception, it is estimated that more than 21,000 people have been saved by the Coast Guard Rescue Divers. Now, MTL was also found criminally liable the first time that a ship owner had been in lieu of facing these charges, they settled for $15 million to go to the families. So again, I'm thinking back to how much they actually lost by losing a ship, losing its cargo, losing the men, and then having to pay the families. Nothing will ever make up to those families what they lost and I wonder sometimes if hearing that number, that 21,000 people were saved by the implementations made because of the Marine Electric tragedy, if that, that number brings any solace to the crew's loved ones. Now, I, I don't know, because if it were me, I don't think it really would. 
While I would be glad that something good came from the tragedy, I would also question, why did it have to be my family? Now afterwards, James D. McCann, the rescue diver, was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for his heroism. Now, James McCann stayed in the water for about an hour trying to get as many men as he could into the basket. That was really too long for him to stay in the water, but he wanted to give it his all. And finally, his commander ordered him back onto the helicopter. Now, even though at the time, Dominic Lecchio was hassled and pretty much forced out of his job because of his integrity, Later, the Coast Guard Inspections and Investigation School named its Colicchio Award after him for his impact and honor and respect and devotion to duty. Robert Cusick, the one who kept fastidious notes and was brave enough to testify against his ship owner, returned to sea, but he did pass away in 2013. While I'd been reading about this event, the name Stan Rogers came up. I watch many different types of documentaries, and my hunch about Stan Rogers was confirmed. Rogers was a Canadian folk singer. Bob Cusick kept singing one of his songs. He actually felt that it saved his life. To quote one of my sources, Chief Mate Bob Cusick credited his survival of the sinking to the Stan Rogers song, The Mary Ellen Carter. The song, which details the exploits of a loyal crew working to salvage the titular vessel, and more specifically, the last stanzas, was repeatedly sung by Cusick in order to keep himself awake in the pounding Atlantic swell. So if I may delve off the Delmarva Peninsula for a moment, Cusick wrote to Rogers to let him know of this ordeal. Rogers invited him to one of his concerts and also said that he would write a song about the experience. However, in a tragic twist, Rogers did not get a chance to write that song as he was killed on Air Canada Flight 797. An onboard fire broke out, and after they landed, the fresh air caused a flashover. And with the interior of the plane, it actually was melting. I think that's the only way that I can think of to describe it. This aviation accident itself also led to widespread air travel improvements. Smoke detectors were required to be installed in bathrooms, Strip lighting had to be installed to show the way to the exits so that passengers could see it in the event of a fire. Crew became better trained in handling fires and with firefighting equipment. And for those of you that have ever been seated beside the wings on an airplane, it is because of this accident that you are now asked if you feel comfortable assisting in an emergency and being directed on what to do. It was also required that an aircraft be able to be evacuated in less than 90 seconds. Now, I did rely on the Disasters at Sea episode 
deadly neglect for a lot of my information. And that's another coincidence as well because both Disasters at Sea and the Air Disasters episode that detailed Stan Rogers' last moments both air on the Smithsonian Channel. So I think we should all take a moment to reflect on both of these disasters and the people who lost their lives, which led to thousands of lives being saved. So today I will also end with a request. A few weeks ago on a mini-sode, I mentioned that one of the cherished ponies on Assateague was killed by a hit and run driver. There recently has been a petition started to get speed bumps installed to try to protect these treasures. I will link that petition in the description if you would like to review it and sign. Also, if you do find this content interesting, please share the podcast, rate, review it, or leave a comment if your podcatcher allows it. This helps with those algorithms that help people find the podcast. And soon I will also have a collaboration with another true crime podcaster. Um, even though I do not exclusively cover true crime. But look out for that in the upcoming weeks. And finally, please let me know whether or not you enjoy the mini-sodes that I'm starting to do. These are shorter stories that may still be evolving or incidents whose investigations were brief. That way I'll know what type of content my listeners enjoy so that I can concentrate on that type. So as always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening today, and I hope all of you have a good rest of the week, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.